0: verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you Constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit. Not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ to Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who abolished the death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I am believe. convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit and, and trust to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are by and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Omosiphorus, for he often refreshed me He was not ashamed of my chains. When he arrived in Rome, he searched for me Earnestly, and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Hey, this is God's word. Um, we're going to at this time dismiss our children um, to the King's kids area. Make sure that you check uh, them in, parents, so that we can dismiss them appropriately. Get everybody sent off with the right person. We're going to take just a few minutes to greet one another, and then we will be back for to tip each other one. Alright guys, hey everyone, Would grab a seat. Um, Just a reminder, if you're here and you don't have a Bible and you would like one, um, you can grab one off of our information table, which is uh, to the very back on my left. Um, Feel free to go back there and to grab uh, a Bible. We love God's Word, and we'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Um, And if you would, as you have your Bibles, open up or turn on to 2 Timothy chapter 1, That's where we are going to be um, this morning. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, uh, this is part two, um, but we'll get into a little bit more of that in a minute. For those of you who are familiar uh, with uh, with 2 Timothy, uh, perhaps we did a poll last week, and I think about half of the room um, could could, say, like, yeah, I've spent some time reading through 2 Timothy before. We are on the back end of a summer series through the pastoral epistles. That's what we're reading. In case you didn't know, there are different genres genres within the Bible, um, and one of those genres is uh, epistle. We are reading through a pastoral epistle. It is one of uh, three. We've already worked through 1 Timothy. We are now in 2 Timothy, and if you continue on turning to the right in your Bible, you'll come to the book of Titus, which is the third of three pastoral epistles that we have um, in in, uh, the scriptures. And so um, we are working through a summer series through 1 and to um, Timothy, we said last week is sort of a, an introduction of sorts, um, reminder, this is Paul's second letter to Timothy. If you missed uh, part one uh, of this week or all of 1 Timothy, you can go back and you can listen to those online. Mac Smith does an incredible job getting those up each week, and so Mac, thanks for um, doing that. You can go back, you can check that out. That is my shameless plug to go back and listen to 1 Timothy as well as part one of 2 Timothy Chapter One. Uh, most commentators agree that uh, this letter was most likely uh, written between sixty-four and sixty-five A.D. during Paul's imprisonment in Rome under the reign of Nero. We talked about um, the uh, just a lot of the challenges that. Uh, present themselves by way of imprisonment during this particular time, in this particular place, under this particular ruler last week. The atrocities um, are historic. You can go back and you can check those out. Um, But we did mention a few of those last week. Long story short, um, Nero is not a really solid guy to be imprisoned as a Christian under. And so Paul is uh, experiencing some really challenging, really difficult circumstances um, as he pens this Letter. Uh, our main idea for last week and we're going to continue it on into this week is as follows where we're unpacking the gospel transformed life. Right, really, over the course of the summer, we've been talking about the gospel driven church and how there is just this weaving back and forth between instruction for the church and instruction for the individual. That's that's fairly common as it pertains to an epistle. It's a lot of, hey, this is what you ought to do. And so we've been trying to approach that in context from a gospel-centered perspective, and as we have, we have noticed last week, and we'll continue this week, that the gospel-transformed life is a gospel-informed life, okay, that the gospel-transformed life is a gospel-informed life, we talked a little bit last week about how the fact that we are Christians, that our hearts have been made new by Christ, by faith, and God's grace we now reflect back on the gospel and we we look to it right for for hope and encouragement as well as um, insight and instruction as to how we are to now live our lives that we as a people a gospel saved people right are now living our lives in light of the observance of the gospel and we're saying okay how does this right this good news of who Christ is and what he has accomplished that brings me into to fellowship with God, how does this inform the way that I now live my life? We say this, that the gospel informs everything that we do, right? For those of you that are in this room and you're, um, I know we've got a handful of teachers in this room that are preparing to go back to school. You know what? Like, you need the gospel, right? And that's going to be even more apparent over the next Couple of weeks, right? Um, we are in need of the gospel. We need to look to the gospel for hope and encouragement. How we relate with individuals, children, loving them well, right? Families, um, communicating at times hard truths, well, right, in grace, right? It doesn't. It is not unique to one particular facet of the population, but the gospel informs everything that we do for everyone, right? Does that make sense? here anyway, for marriages, the gospel informs the way that we relate to one another in marriage, in singleness. The gospel informs the way that we live as singles, right? That, that it, it informs everything. And so here we are. We're, we're just, I'm preaching the main idea. We've got to get to the text. But the idea is this, that the gospel transformed life is a gospel informed life. Last week we began considering four considerations from 2 Timothy chapter 1, managing to make it through only two of those. And so allow me to revisit the first two for just a moment, not too long, because we do not want to make this part three. Okay, number one uh, from last week is this. From from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we see what Christ-centered friendship looks like. right? Gospel-centered friendship. Friendship. This idea that Christ's pursuit of sinners and his rescue of our souls shapes our appreciation for friendships and the community that he draws us into around himself. That was a, a big idea that we spent a lot of time focusing on last week. Right, that, that our community, the community that we enjoy, must, as Christians, be informed by this reality that we have been called into community with God. And now we live as a Christ-centered people in community with one another. Right, that there's a, there's a vertical element that informs the horizontal. We see the the, the great care and the love that Paul communicates um, to Timothy through the first five verses as he reflects on things that have taken place in their lives together and in their lives separately and how all of this is being used to God's glory. Christ-centered friendships. They're important. They're, They're valuable. The gospel informs these things. The life that we are called into as Christians is not always Easy, but it's not that complicated either. Christ Jesus calls us into intimate fellowship with God, taking all of our shame, which is going to prove to be super important as we continue on through points three and four. Today, He takes all of our shame, he takes all of our burdens upon himself at the cross so that we could live the types of God-glorifying, God-resting lives that we were created for with him and with one another. We see that our friendships are shaped by the rhythms of scripture as opposed to the rhythms of culture. Uh, I'll never forget, and uh, we're going back and I'm reteaching last week, but I just can't help it. We've got to connect some ideas here. I'll never forget uh, probably uh, eight to ten years ago hearing for the first time an illustration uh, by a fairly well-known pastor who was doing ministry on the West Coast. I believe that it was in L.A. or just outside. And one thing that he found was this. That that uh, because of their um, their geographical context, right, and faithfulness to the gospel and God's faithfulness to save sinners, they saw a lot of um, who were at one time gang members being brought into the faith and fellowship within this local church. And and I'll never forget one thing that he said about Christ-centered friendships and what we are being called into and what is made available by way of the hope that we have in Jesus. He talked about a conversation that he had with a former gang member who found himself somewhat frustrated after about six months as a part of this church. And so he came to the pastor and he said to him, hey, here's, here's a problem that I'm kind of having. Like the relationships here, there seems to be some type of disconnect to which the pastor responds, okay, well like tell me more about that, like what are you, what are you talking about here? And he says, well, what I thought um, is that when I joined this Christ-centered community, and I'm paraphrasing here, right, that the relationships would look at least as strong as those that I had experienced in my former life as a gang member. But what I found is that they are lacking. And what he was saying was this that there was this expectation given the centrality of Christ in Christian community that the relationships that he was leaving would not be as strong as the relationships that he was entering into. And what he found was that he was somewhat disappointed. He was surprised. And so, as we considered that point from last week, one thing that we were encouraged to do is is gospel-informed friendships, Christ-centered friendships, intimacy, and fellowship with one another, informed by the intimacy and fellowship that we enjoy with God. That's what Paul says in verses 1 and 2. As we look on, we looked towards endurance and ministry. This call to endure in ministry from verses 6 and 7. Paul's encouragement to Timothy is God's encouragement to those who are weary in ministry and mission today. Fan the flame. Right? Fan the flame. Remember, God's gifting you for this work, a gift whose presence was affirmed by his people. And we talked about. How these gifts are fanned through practices and disciplines such as, here are the five, I'm not going to unpack them all, and so if you were here last week, don't freak out, okay? But if you weren't, these might prove to be helpful. Number one, reading God's word. We fan the flame by reading God's word, by embracing Christian fellowship, by welcoming pastoral counsel, by studying. A lot and participating in corporate worship. These are all ways that the flame is fanned that we might endure in the strength of Christ, gospel ministry, and a life of mission. Today we're looking at considerations three and four. And so there's only two. First one's a bit longer, and the second one is going to be a little bit a little bit shorter. So so hang with me. Two considerations that we're going to observe today from the second half of 2 Timothy chapter 1. We see this encouragement towards confidence in Christ in verses 8 through 12. And finally, a love and defense of truth in verse 13. So these are the two things that we're going to unpack today as we consider the gospel-transformed life being a gospel-informed life. Confidence in Christ and a love and defense of truth. And so let's look at verses 8 through 12 and consider Paul's confidence towards confidence, Paul's call towards confidence in Christ. A lot of seeds. hang with me here, right? Upon the backdrop of these two communal considerations, what we're, we're, we're kind of dubbing those, those first two, right? And a call towards endurance, Paul writes this in verse 8. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me His prisoner, we see here an exhortation, right that that Paul embraces and practices himself, which thus supports his expectation for others. In this case, specifically Timothy, I want us to consider Paul's writings in Romans Romans chapter one for just a moment. Because we see a connection between this idea of verse 8 and this call to not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, which Paul had experienced as a result of the abandonment of his friends in Asia, right? And a handful of individuals who were called out specifically by name. We have this large group, like everybody, right? And then we have this smaller group of these two specific individuals that are called out for abandoning. Paul, this has been a major issue for Paul, but I want us to consider what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. He writes, in speaking of shame toward the gospel and Christ, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, so so Paul is calling Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And we see a similar idea reflected in Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel. So let's connect these two ideas for just a moment. Paul calls Timothy to follow his example as he follows Christ's example. Right? Paul calls Timothy towards gospel confidence with a clear conscience because he is familiar with it. Right? He says, "Like I understand the tendency, I understand the pressure. Some of these ideas are are, are communicated in context, right? But he says, I am not ashamed. And so the encouragement then for Timothy is upon this backdrop in which Paul can say, I am not ashamed, and therefore, Timothy, you ought not be ashamed either. Paul's familiar with the struggle. Only he doesn't stop there, but he goes on to state the reason for his confidence, which is extremely helpful, isn't it? Like, I get don't be ashamed. Like, I understand that. Don't be ashamed. Wonderful. Great. But where does that come from? Like, how how do we do that? How do we live in that? You talk about Timothy, who is a somewhat timid guy with a bad stomach, doing ministry in a difficult context. Right? And Paul says to him, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. A call that he is familiar with. Right, but one that we are, as we consider, perhaps even our tendencies in our own lives, to display shame, to, to rest in shame and sin. How do we, how do we battle back right, against this? How do, we, how do we fight back? Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Well, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who... Believes. Jew or Greek. We see this emphasis on the transcendent nature of the gospel. Right, That the gospel transcends barriers. The gospel transcends walls and differences. Right, That the gospel is the hope of salvation for sinners. From every and in every background. An understanding that we need to be pointed back to, right, again and again and again, as we talk about consistently living mission in a challenging world, right, in a challenging context, right, I've heard story after story after story of individuals who have been faithfully praying for it and sharing the gospel with friends and family for years, And it comes to a point in which there's there's hesitation or or concern or doubt. We see the power of the gospel emphasized by Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. That the gospel, we are not ashamed of it because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul says that he is not embarrassed, but in fact he is unapologetic concerning the gospel. And so, if you're relatively new, right, to to certain Christian language, biblical language, then I think it would be helpful for us to consider what we mean when we say, and when Paul says, gospel. What does that mean? What are we talking about? Well, the gospel is this. The gospel is is good news. The gospel is, is good news of the coming of the kingdom of God through Jesus. Right, the God Man who exposes our sin through His righteousness, the God Man who, because of His death upon the cross, is our means of forgiveness and restoration. Listen to what Jesus Himself says in Mark chapter one, verse fifteen. This is following the baptism of Jesus, right in His His time in the wilderness. In which he proves victorious over Satan and his attempts to lead him into sin. He comes back out from the wilderness and he, he proclaims the following. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Right? That, that I'm the one, that I'm the king. Right? That I'm the, the rescuer and the redeemer and the reconciler. I'm the one that the Old Testament prophets looked upon in faith, confident that God would prove himself faithful to send one, to to save a people, to extend mercy, to lift them up, and to judge the evil and the wicked. In Genesis chapter 3, we see sin's entrance into creation. In Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam experience shame for the first time as a result of the fall. You guys are perhaps familiar with the story, right? Adam and Eve, they, they rebel from God, they take from the tree, succumbing to temptation, and they notice that they are naked. They're ashamed. Right? We see shame's entrance. How do we explain the existence of shame? We're all working, we're working this upon the backdrop of do not be ashamed. But what about the presence of shame? Where does that come from? Well, we we see that in Genesis chapter 3. Shame is something that you and I are familiar with. Because of Adam, it is a part of the human experience. At times physically, but most certainly spiritually. As we observe the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and even beyond, which we'll touch in just a moment, we are confronted with this reality that we are not God. We observe creation, the beauty of it, and we're brought to this realization, Psalm 19:1, that we are not God, because the heavens declare the glory of His name. Right? Christ brings us to this reality. Hebrews chapter one, verse three, He is. Christ, the radiance of the glory of God, and exact imprint of His nature. And so I'm about to make a statement, and I want you to hang with me for just a moment, because this, is, this might be a little bit shocking initially. God's glory produces, at least at the front end, shame. As we realize that we are not God and that He is, just as it did with Adam, it's like this: um, we've all been um, children. Some of you are still children, right? The thing about like how the uh, the economy of like neighborhood child life works. Right. I was thinking back earlier this week about um, tendencies that uh, that I found myself a part of as as a as a youngster. Right. Um, certain bragging rights that existed in the neighborhood based on who was the fastest. Right? I'm the fastest in the neighborhood. Like, I'm the fastest on the street. Like, I can run from my driveway to the mailbox at the end of the cul-de-sac faster than anybody. I've been out here training. I'm running hillsides. My diet consists of, like, Popeyes and Rice Krispie treats, right? And so I'm, like, ready to go. I can take all comers until the day that you get dusted, like, by the kid who, like, gets picked last at recess every week, Right? You're confronted with your shortcomings, and as a result, you are ashamed. You, You run home and you hide because you realize that you are not all that you thought you were. As we observe the glory of God in creation, as we observe the glory of God in Christ Jesus, we are brought to this realization that we are not all that we thought that we are. That we have issues, that we have problems, that we have great need. That we have a great need that we ourselves are incapable of meeting in and of ourselves. We have a need that rests upon the work of another. As we observe the glory of God, we are brought to shame. Only there's incredibly good news, right? Right? In Christ, not only is our shame exposed, but our shame is dealt with. We we see our need for, for rescue from God's wrath. We see our need for a Redeemer who brings us into fellowship with the God who created all things and displays His glory all around us. The author of the Hebrews writes, the author, too, Hebrews writes this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy set before him, speaking of Christ, he endured the cross. And we're talking about this idea of shame. Don't be ashamed. That's the instruction from Paul to Timothy, we see in Hebrews chapter twelve, verse two, where our tendency to to feel this, right, to experience this, as a result of of our exposure to the righteousness of Christ. Only there is hope for the joy set before him. He Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, and I sat down at the right hand of the throne of. God, I want us to consider the way that this works itself out in the life, ministry, and time of Jesus. Whereas we yield to shame, Christ did not. We succumb to shame. You can probably think of of two or three examples, right? Perhaps internally, perhaps externally, perhaps it's something that you're dealing with right now where you can say, yes, shame has the upper hand. Sin is currently, like, winning this battle in my life. Christ does not not yield to it, right? He does not run. As we reflect back on what we observe in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they are ashamed as a result of sin's entrance into the world and this realization that they are naked. And what do they do? They sew some fig leaves together, right, to cover themselves, their shame, their nakedness, their sin, a poor attempt, mind you. And then, upon hearing the word of the Lord, they jump into the thickets. To hide from him. Right? They, they feel the shame and they run from the presence of the Lord. We see Christ upon the cross embracing the will of God fully. Not running despite the fact that all of his friends did. He's stripped naked and yet he does not submit to sin. He is tempted and yet he remains faithful. Sin and shame do not rule Jesus. Okay? At times in your life, in my life it feels as though sin and shame are driving the bus. Only in the life of Christ we see the sin does not possess this type of power. Right? Shame does not possess this type of power. They do not rule over Jesus why? Well, because he has total confidence in the power of God to save him. From the grave before passing on eternal glory forever and ever. We cannot do this. We do not possess this. But the good news is that Jesus does. And so we see here how the gospel exposes our greatest need only then to meet our need in Christ. And so let's funnel all of this down. We've got this command in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. This might be your tendency, but don't go there. Fight against that. Flee from that and run to Christ. In Christ, we do not have to be ashamed. In Christ, we do not have to be ashamed. The grip of sin and shame are broken by Christ because He, get this, has conquered them. Christ is. Conquers sin and shame at the cross. He, He despises it. He puts it in the grave, a grave that he would leave vacant as he resurrects back to life, ascending to the right hand of the Father after 40 days of saying some really incredible things to his followers, equipping them for mission and then providing them the spirit to go out and do this in power. Through Christ and his obedience to the point of death, his love for the Father and his love for sinners, our self-righteousness and need is exposed. So let's stand this morning. Not actually, remain seated. That would be awkward, right? Let's remain seated this morning, right? And let's just look and gaze upon the glory of Christ Jesus revealed in Scripture as God reveals himself and his son to us that our sin and shame might be exposed. We oftentimes, we hey, we back away from that, don't we? And we don't like to, to live that. We don't like to acknowledge that. And so we dig a hole into the recesses of our being and we try to cover just enough dirt on top to keep said shit, sin and shame from crawling out again. Right? We seek to lock it in a closet right? Or, or, or burn it to the ground. Only what we find is that as we seek to accomplish this, apart from the strength of the gospel, we are again and again and again unsuccessful. And so let us this morning gaze upon the glory of God in Christ Jesus, seeing our sin and shame exposed, and then run to him, right, to, to, to deal with it, right, to, to kill it, right, to strengthen us for the continual killing process of sin and shame. That's what we need to do. That's what, that's what we need to do. We are saved. Right? And sustained through repentance and faith in the finished work of our King. So, right, here we are. Don't be ashamed. Don't, don't be ashamed. You don't have to be ashamed. Christ deals with our sin. Right? He sets us free. We don't have to be ashamed of Him. Instead... Paul continues on. It says flee the shame, right? Don't be ashamed, second part of verse 8, but instead share in suffering for the gospel. So we've got a we've got a lot of things on the table here, right? Like our sin and shame are exposed, right? We know who we go to for, for hope, right? Salvation, endurance. Go to Jesus. And then we see that this slot that was occupied by sin and shame in our life is now filled with this call to, get this, share in suffering. Share in suffering for the gospel. Well, how in the world do we do that? We're not left to speculation, but Paul answers that question as he continues on. Shared in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So how do we, how do, we do that? How do, we, how, do we, how do we flee from sin and shame? How do we run to Christ and embrace a life of gospel-centered suffering? We do so not in the strength of our own backs, but in the power of God. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That's an incredible idea and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which, Paul says in verse 11, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. I want us to realize something about Paul. Let's not leave his circumstances behind. We're not setting those things over here and like, just moving on and considering everything else that he has to say outside of the context of where he is. Paul is suffering, and he's suffering for the gospel. That's helpful, isn't it? Like, Paul's not writing to Timothy and encouraging him towards um, confidence, right, in the testimony of our Lord and an embrace of suffering for the gospel from some ivory tower. But he's writing these things from a pit. Incredible hardship. Incredible suffering, not as a result of his sin and poor decisions that have been made, but because he is is living out the gospel and faithfulness to Christ by the power of God. Verse 8. As we consider this, we are brought to an incredible realization about Paul and his mentality, one that we desire to be present in you and I, and that is this, that Paul's Feelings are not formed by his circumstances, but instead by his knowledge of God. Let me say that one more time. Right there, that Paul's feelings are not formed by his circumstances, but instead by his knowledge of God. Right? Paul's, Paul's trial does not shape his understanding of who God is. Instead, God shapes Paul's understanding of who God is. Right? Paul's feelings are not God, God is God, and therefore there must be an understood purpose of pain that results from gospel service, pushed forward by gospel confidence. Peter points to the purpose of pain in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 14 when he writes. I love considering what we see from 1 Peter chapter 4 and what we see here in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1. Listen to what Peter writes. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Whoa, wait a second, what's going on? This is strange. Right? Don't 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 enter into that. Right? But instead, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, here we go, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There is purpose. We need to get this. Right? There is purpose. Purpose in Christian pain as we are conformed into the image of Jesus. As we share in suffering for the sake of the gospel, to the glory of his name. By a strength that does does not flow naturally from our own unction, but instead comes from God. Who saved us, verse 8, and called us, verse 8, to a holy calling. Verse 9, not because of our works... Right? Anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace for the glory of his name, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Listen to this. I want us to focus on this for just a minute. Because this is going to broaden our perspective. This is going to broaden our understanding. Pain, suffering, difficulty. right? The circumstances that we as Christ's people endure. Paul echoes a similar truth in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Drawing out God's eternal, pre-existent grace made visible through creation. Right, That this is who God is. This is who he has always been. And the preservation of his people, followed by the incarnation of the Son, and finally the cross and the resurrection. You say, that's a lie. I tell you, write down Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. I'm going to read it. And it just says everything that I've just said to you. Here's what Paul writes. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, God's people, called into faith, adopted into the family, that we should be blameless, holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons of. Through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. Listen, write this down. This is important. We are sinners. We are sinners saved by the love and grace of God in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We are sinners saved by the love and grace of God in Christ Jesus before the ages began, according to His will and the praise of His name. Wow. We need this 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 grander picture of who God is, right? And how he, he manifests His will, how it works so that when we look back and we see this call to Timothy, that is a call to you and I not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, we would know all of these things purpose for our pain and his plan being manifest and happening in real time, we are observing it as sinners are adopted into the family as a result of his great grace and work. This, Paul says, is why, second half of verse 12, he suffers as he does. This is why Paul suffers as he does, because his mind and his heart have been opened. His mind and his heart have been open to understand the work of God and the value of Christ. And as a result, he is, by grace, now willing and eager to suffer for Jesus. That's a, that's a, that's a next-level type of thing, isn't it? Not only willing, but eager to suffer right, for Christ, confident that, that through suffering, God is bringing about his plan and purpose to conform us into the image of Jesus, right? Who in hardship wakes up and goes, yes, more suffering, not as a result of poor decisions, but because of faith, suffering. We need a transformed perspective, don't we? we We need a transformed perspective that understands the purpose of difficulty so that we too, along with Paul, might embrace suffering, not shame, knowing and believing that this is the work of Christ and it has reason. Paul writes, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And listen to this last part. We live in a fallen world, we live in a fallen culture, we feel the effects of sin and brokenness and evil like on our lives and in our lives, as Paul does. And yet listen to what he says. This is where we want to be, okay? This is where we want to be. By lean in, like listen to this. I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and alright, I'm convinced. Or I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Right? Paul has this supernatural confidence for this work. Right? Perseverance and endurance for gospel ministry and the life of faith. Understanding that it falls not on our ability, but on God's ability. Right? That he is able to keep, that he is able to guard. Doesn't that transform the way that we observe the world around us, right? And, and situations and circumstances that arise in our life, living a, a challenging life of faith. Doesn't that transform the way that we do that when we understand what Paul is saying here? That there is a, a God who is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted. Yes, okay? Yes, I'll answer this. This is not a hypothetical. It's like, yes, it does. It totally transforms. Paul is not ashamed of Christ because he has been made to see his glory. And now he's confident that he's not only saved, but he is safe until the king returns. Not safe as the world would define it, but safe as to how God defines it. is confident, right, that that, uh, I am with you always, Matthew chapter 28, is enough to guard our souls, right, it's it's enough to, to live on no matter who else forsakes us, that's a paraphrase of Charles Spurgeon, so don't be ashamed, instead be It's not a confidence that comes from from you and I, our ability, our strength, our unction, but it's a confidence that rests in the character of God. Everybody okay? Are we all right? Okay, we're going to finish. Here we go. Last point, much shorter, so hang with me for just a moment. Four considerations that we've observed from 2 Timothy chapter 1. First, Christ-centered friendship. Second, endurance in ministry. Third, this confidence that we now have in Christ, verses 8 through 12. And finally, this call for love and defense of truth. Listen to what Paul writes in verse 13. He says, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Really simple here. What does Paul say? Paul says this Embrace sound doctrine. Right? Embrace sound doctrine. Paul needs this. Timothy needs this. And you and I need this. We need to be reminded that the truths of God that come from God will lead us into deeper fellowship with God. Let me say that one more time. Why is doctrine important? Why does doctrine matter? We need to be reminded that the truths of God that come from God this here, right? This, this informs our doctrine. Truths of God that come from God will lead us into deeper fellowship with God. And so we love doctrine. I remember not too many weeks ago, Katie Brewer and I had a conversation in front of the church before service started, and we were talking about the value of doctrine, right? And there are camps that would say, avoid doctrine, doctrine divides. No, right? Doctrine drives us into deeper fellowship and intimacy with God. Right? We, we, we love and appreciate sound doctrine because we know that it informs our relationship with our Creator, that it informs our understanding of who we are and how we live in this world around us, these truths that are held up and held out by God. Paul pins a final charge. In chapter 1, in verse 14, he writes, By the power, or by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I told you a couple of weeks ago um, that one thing that we could do last week, it seems like a couple of weeks. I guess that counts. This week, last week, right? Last week, I told you guys that it would be helpful to consider the commands of Paul to Timothy and readers, um, through 2 Timothy, that you can literally begin in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and you can work your way through the end of the letter, and it would do you well to just highlight the commands that we see, and the encouragements, and the exhortations, we see a final one right here, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard, Paul says to Timothy, the good deposit entrusted to you, What does this mean? How does this relate to doctrine, the command that we just saw? Why do we love doctrine and how do we respond to it? The call is this, to guard the unchanging word of God. To guard the unchanging word of God. I love what John Stott in his introduction um, to 2 Timothy says when he writes this. Now this is not going to be up here, so you guys are just going to have to like... Like narrow in and listen, okay? You guys hate being read too? Sorry, it's happening. Okay, so here we go. Stahl writes this, the church of our day urgently needs to heed the message of this second letter of Paul to Timothy. And so if you're here and you're of, um, you're of the opinion that all that we're reading here, this doesn't really matter that much. It was written so long ago. Um, even if you would profess Christ and you would say, I don't know like, if, this is really, if this is really my thing or not. Um, here Stahl says, and we're on board with this, um, that the church needs this. Right, that we need the message um, of Paul to Timothy. He continues on. For all around we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp of the gospel. Fumbling it in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. A new generation of young Timothys is needed. Who will, here it is, guard the sacred deposit of the gospel. This is a call to guard the gospel. Okay, This is a call to guard the gospel. Who are determined to proclaim it, and to um, and, and are prepared to suffer for it. And so, it's not only a proclamation, but it's a preparation for suffering for the gospel. And who will pass it on, pure and uncorrupted, to the generation which is due, which in due course will rise up to follow them. We've got to see beyond ourselves, don't we? We've got to see beyond ourselves and we've got to say, man, we are are seeing our place in this as guarding this good deposit and then entrusting it to the next generation. Who will, uh, barring the second return of our king, one day take the torch and run in our place? And so the encouragement then is not to fumble it away, not to drop it, but to hold strong to the gospel. To hold strong to to the word of God. Sound biblical doctrine. Tim Chalice continues as he writes this. God has given us the gospel to trust. It's been entrusted to us, church. It's been entrusted to us to, to guard and to keep. He has deposited it into our account and expects that we will guard this priceless, precious treasure. God has entrusted to us something of, I love this, infinite worth and unsurpassed beauty. Man, do you see the gospel that way? Like, do you see it that way? Like, do we see the gospel that way? He's not left us to our own devices, but has provided for us the Holy Spirit, that which, uh, uh, His help uh, we may. Be faithful in guarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spiritual discernment allows us to keep the gospel central and allows us to see and guard against error. Spiritual discernment is absolutely crucial to the one who uh, would understand and heed the gospel. Listen to what he says, this final line. This is incredible. So good. Nothing less than the gospel is at stake. Nothing less than the gospel is at stake. All right. So as we as we look back and we consider what we have heard from Paul to Timothy, there's been this emphasis on Christ-centered friendship. This understanding that by way of the gospel and our being called into fellowship with God that our relationships with one another are now transformed and there's been this call towards endurance in ministry right if we just if we just read the point we understand that there is going to be a a bit of work that goes into the Christian life right that we must endure there's a a, a reflection upon confidence in Christ and finally a call to love and defend that which is True, And so as we close out our time, we consider two weeks' worth of 2 Timothy chapter 1. What can we say in light of our time together this morning? As Christians, we can say this. That we do not have to flee hardship. That we don't have to flee hardship, but we can stand confident because Christ has stood confident. Because Christ stands confident. We don't have to add to God's word. We don't have to take away from God's word. But we, 2 Timothy chapter 1, guard the revelation of God. We guard it. We protect it. We hold fast to it. We defend it. We love it. We appreciate it. We revisit it like an old friend every day. We recognize and confess our need for it. We speak it. Right? And, we, and we share it confident that this gospel that Timothy is charged to guard, to not be ashamed of, but to be confident in. Confident that this message of our crucified and resurrected King is able to save sinners and to encourage the saints. And so, this is where we are. So, we close our time. This is is where we are. And so the question then for personal reflection within each and every one of us under the sound of my voice this morning is this. Is is this where you are? Is this where where I am? are Are we living here? Are we abiding here? This may not be where you are today. It may not be where you are when you came in this room. But it can be where you are when you leave. And so let us love the gospel. Let us love and appreciate the gospel. Let us not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but let us go out in confidence as a people, living mission, that it is powerful and capable of transforming the hardest of hearts, the Jew and the Greek. Let us love the gospel, and let's enjoy the gospel as we close out our time together today.